You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. This week, we hear from two people involved in the Homes Not Prison campaign, Amy and Karen. The campaign initiated by the Advocacy Service for Criminalised Women and Gender Nonconforming People, Flat Out, aims to stop the $188.9 million expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison in Melbourne's West and invest in public housing. The number of women locked up, not including trans women locked up in men's prisons, more than doubled in the decade to 2018 to 581 from 248 in 2008. A note for listeners, content warning for descriptions of domestic violence for this show. The following interview first aired on 3CR's Thursday Breakfast with Carly Beck. We hear Amy tell her story of the devastating impact of punitive laws contributing to her being incarcerated. We start off with Amy and Karen introducing themselves. So I'm Amy and I have lived experience of being remanded in custody at DPFC. And Karen. Hi, I'm Karen. I am on the board of Flat Out, which is a statewide service for women leaving prison and their kids. We provide support for women to get out and stay out of prison. Great. Thank you for that. So Amy, would you like to share a little bit of your story of coming into contact with the criminal legal system? And then we'll get into talking a bit more about those bail law reforms in 2018. My experience was in 2019. There was a family violence incident between myself and my husband. He held me down and strangled me in front of, which was witnessed by my 12-year-old son with autism. And I defended myself, uh, which stopped him, you know, strangling me, but um, the police were called and I was arrested and he was taken to hospital and that's sort of the starting point. The last thing, so I have, uh, I had a 12-year-old son, an 11-year-old daughter and at that time a 17-month-old baby. Um, the last thing my son said to me before the police arrived was, I saw him hold you down, I don't want to be taken away from you. I knew the police were coming, so I sort of kept it together as best I could. I explained at least three times to the police that came what had happened and... They sort of weren't interested. The the argument that had happened is that it was based on money, sort of. So there was a lot of a background of abuse in the relationship, but sometimes physical, but more um, emotional, psychological, coercive, and financial control. So this was an argument around that financial, like withholding financial assets of the marriage. And one officer at the scene was like, walked off, was like, oh, so it was an argument about money. And I, yes, I was arrested. I complied. I cooperated every step of the way. I, at that stage, um, was working within the criminal justice system. So I had a belief in the system. You know, it was a system I worked within. And so I strongly believe that if I could just tell the truth about what would happen, 
I would be released on bail. I expected consequences. But my first and foremost thought was I need to go home to my kids. The police denied me bail. Um, and then the next day I was taken to court and I waited all day and I saw a duty lawyer very briefly who said, um, who I again explained all the circumstances to and basically they advised make an application for bail yourself and if it's denied you have another chance to get a lawyer to do it for you. When it was my turn to go into the court the judge said to me there's a presumption against bail um, and you need to provide a compelling reason why you should be granted bail. I wasn't charged with any serious offences. My most serious, I was charged with a few like assault and things like that, but the most serious charge was intentionally causing injury, not causing serious injury. There was nothing, there was no serious charges. So I said to the judge, look, I'm 30 years old. I work in the criminal justice system. I have never been arrested or charged or anything in my life. I This was a family violence incident where I was defending myself. I have a child with autism. I have two other children, a daughter and a 17-month-old baby, and if I'm not released, they will go into foster care. And that wasn't compelling enough, and I was remanded into custody. Women on the line. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story, Amy. And maybe, Karen, can you talk about some of these effects that these really harsh bail laws have had on some people that you've worked alongside as well? Yeah, well, Amy's story is not unusual these days. In the last probably three or four years, we're seeing more and more people remanded into custody for relatively minor offences and stuck in custody for some period of time. Amy, I I gather you were in for several months. Yes, so I was remanded for 110 days. I wanted, I explained to my lawyer that I wanted to explore a defence of self-defence. My lawyer advised that this would be unlikely to succeed and that it would involve cross-examining my then 13-year-old son who has autism and that the court doesn't look kindly on cross-examining children and also not something that I would want to put my son through. So I followed that advice. I pleaded guilty. I had served 110 days on remand. I was sentenced to another 10 days, 120 days all up. In sentencing me, the judge said that if not for my guilty plea, he would have doubled my time to eight months. And just with the effect on my kids. The night I was arrested, intervention orders were granted, or the police here got intervention orders against me for the protection of my husband and my children so I could have no contact with them. Child protection became involved immediately, as I knew they would. There was no carer. And the court orders that were made provided for weekly phone contact with my older two children and monthly visits with my 17-month-old son who, from the day he was born, had spent every um, day of his life in my care. And so I could have weekly phone contact with my older children and monthly visits with all three kids. Uh, None of that happened. I saw my 17-month-old twice in 120 days. DHS are impossible to contact. There was no repercussions for this 
contact not happening. There was no way for me to make this contact happen. And so when I'm not even getting the contact that I'm the court orders and I'm faced with you can basically get time served or serve another four months and not see your children despite what I think is right and the truth of what happened to me, I think and I know the mothers in there will do anything to get out to see their children. And I did, I got out. Um, the old, my older children were a bit different because they had a say in the contact of when and where, but then I was seeing my my 17-month-old two and then three times a week. Mm. So four months of nothing to do it three times a week. I, you know, every day of the week I would plead guilty. Yeah, and I'm sure that a lot of other people in DPFC who are also mothers and carers would also take that early plea of guilty if they know that they're going to just be able to serve that time and then get out, right, and see their family. Yeah, Karen, did you want to add a bit more to the effects of these bail laws and also maybe um, give listeners a bit of a history of how these bail laws in 2018 came to fruition? From Flat Out's perspective, I mean, what we see is that more than half of the women that are in Dame Phyllis Frost at the moment are on remand. The pressure on the system by this change in the bail laws, which Amy can explain, has become enormous where there are just thousands of women going into Dame Phyllis Frost, churning through, doing a few weeks, a couple of months on remand. And then, as you say, under enormous pressure to plead guilty and not have a trial, because especially during COVID, people have been waiting months, if not years, for uh, their day in court. So you get the choice of plead guilty now and get an extra 10 days like Amy did, or plead not guilty and wait months or even years for a trial. So a lot of people are just staying in there pleading and then getting time served. But yeah, going in just long enough, as Amy has explained, to lose their kids or lose a lot of contact with their kids, lose their accommodation. A lot of people, uh, you know, lose their rental or other kinds of accommodation just long enough to ruin their lives, lose their job if they have a job, long enough to ruin lives. And this is thousands, we're talking about thousands of women. And the other thing about Amy's story that's really common that we're seeing is that a lot of the time uh, women are dealing with family violence and responding to family violence and being charged by police, being misidentified as a perpetrator by police who have sympathy for the men in the situation. And then because of the bail laws, going before a magistrate who essentially says to them, you have to prove that you're not a risk, rather than the police have to prove that you are a risk. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. This week, we are hearing from Carly Vax speak to activists Amy and Karen from the Homes Not Prisons campaign, which aims to stop the expansion of Melbourne's Dame Phyllis Frost prison. Amy is sharing a story of the devastating effect of draconian bail laws on her own life, including experiencing incarceration. We pick up the interview with Karen and Amy speaking of some of the drivers of more and more women becoming entangled in the prison industrial complex. I think, as Amy will probably talk about, one of the drivers of this has been the sort of law and order campaign by the Victorian government following some really serious offending, particularly the Gargasoulis case where the man drove into the city and killed people with his car. If you have a look at the coroner's inquest into the deaths of those people that were killed by Gargasoulis, there was masses of evidence that he posed a risk, including that he had assaulted uh, his ex-partner, committed violence against his brother, 
all sorts of evidence and the police failed to present that to the bail justice. And the coroners in that inquest really took the police to task for that failure. And yet what the government has done is not to require the police to actually do their um, job and identify people that do pose a risk to community safety, like Gargasulas did, um, but to make everybody presume to be a risk uh, and have to have to prove that they're not. Women on the line. It was definitely Gargasulas as well, but a, another key driver was Adrian Bailey and Kelly Gilmar and Sean Price um, and him committing murder of a young girl while on. So there was these people committing really serious offences while on bail and parole. And the thing that I find most hypocritical about this government response is that these are men committing gross acts of violence against women and the people that are most affected by these bail laws are women because they're disproportionately targeted, they have the flow-on effects to their children and in a huge generalisation, when men go to prison, they're usually not primary carers of their children. There's usually someone to pick up the, the pieces, whether it be the mother of the children, mother of the defendant, extended family, again, a generalisation, but that is very um, specific to women who are primary carers. And so these bail laws that are like, oh, these men acted so violently while supposed to be under the supervision of the state that actually tearing tearing apart the lives of women and their children, which was apparently the issue that these bail laws were supposed to address. And I also did, aside from losing care of my children, I lost, I had a rental, I had a full-time job within the criminal justice system. Yeah, so I lost overnight by the um, decision to deny me bail. I lost my house, my job, my kids. And it has taken, so this was 2019, years to rebuild even just some of that. So, and I recognise that that's because I have a level of privilege. I have a good work history that I can refer back to. I have a law degree. I had a parent who could financially help me out. You know, a lot of people don't have that. They are trapped in cycles of offending, they're trapped in poverty, they don't they haven't grown up, you know, in supportive, positive environments. So and that's why I do the stuff that I do, because I know I have the privilege of that I did get out and I won't go back. Whereas like Karen said, people some people can't represent themselves to a judge. And it is it is really hard when you've been a victim of family violence, you've the night before being strangled in front of your son and being taken away by police in front of your children to get up there and coherently explain why you should be released. Like, it is, and then to have a judge say, not good enough, it is soul-destroying. And so you need a lot to, like, hold on and, you know, keep it together. So, you know, it's no wonder that people are remanded because even when you do do your best and you are coherent and you try to explain things and have no criminal history for 30 years, not good enough. Women on the line. You did mention that because of being remanded initially in prison, that then the child protection you know, system became involved. 
How long did that child protection system be involved in your life? So I was in custody from February 2019 to June 2019, so for four months. Their their involvement with me ended in June 2020. So for about 18 months. I yeah, like I said, I had two visits with my 17 month old son in while I was in custody. It was left to my older two children to decide where they wanted to live and my contact with all of the children was supervised until the older two said they didn't want it to be. At the very start of uh, COVID, actually, um, in regards to my my younger son, who's yeah, two, two and a half by then, they were making it supervised to monitored. Um, so they had to make a decision about what they were going to do about that because I was having to travel to DHS three times a week to spend two hours sitting in a room with my two and a half year old son who didn't had no interest in sitting being confined to a room and so to displaying you know compliance I was also so in addition to my sentence I also had an 18 month community corrections order which required that I engage with psychological help and drug and alcohol services as required by corrections as I complied with that DHS were happy with my progress. And so they were, DHS at the beginning of COVID were going to move my access to monitored, where I would go to the DHS office, get my son, go to a park. So they knew where I was, but wouldn't be supervising me. And then they, one day the office was just closed and I rang my case manager and they told me that I could have video visits with my two-and-a-half-year-old son who had autism and was, didn't speak. And I made a, I wrote to the uh, minister, complained about that, about how that was not... <laughs> it was not sufficient. Um, and so beyond the best interest of the child, it was outrageous mm. to mm. see my son three times a week... They were going to let me take him to a park and have video visits. So COVID sort of fast-tracked that because they had to make it monitored um, but made it monitored by my husband, which was the perpetrator of family violence. Basically got to a point by June 2020, DHS were happy with the contact I was having with the older two children and happy that, you know, they could have a say and that would be abided by. And that they got to the position where they were happy for my husband and I to work out arrangements for contact with my son. So it was about 18 months of DHS involvement. This is a really common situation. I spoke before about how more than half of the women who are in Dame Phyllis Frost are on remand and there for short periods of time. But as I said, it's and as Amy's explained, it's enough to completely disrupt family life and separate children from their mother. And Child Protection and DHHS uh, become involved. And our experience at Flat Out is that it's an absolute struggle for, for women, for mothers who are inside, to get contact with their children. DHHS will say the children are being brought for a visit and our clients will be dressed and ready, waiting in the morning for their children to arrive, and they don't come. Uh, they try to get in touch with DHS to ask what's happening and they can't get in touch. This experience of being completely disempowered as a mother to support your kids is, is really a serious problem with what's going on. 
And there's not really much information that's available about the impact that it's having on the kids. We've um, been looking for data on how many kids are put into foster care and state care as a result of their primary care, usually their mother being put into prison. And we understand that DHHS doesn't keep that statistic as a reason for removal. So they will say things like neglect and abuse and other things as a reason, but they don't actually have a box to tick which says parent has been imprisoned. So we don't know. But we do know that the number of children being taken into care, both kinship care and uh, out-of-home care by the state, is increasing. And we believe that that increase is related to the increase of women who are being put into prison. And the numbers are astronomical. You know, whilst there's only, only, whilst there is around 400 women any one night at Dame Phyllis Frost, because they're churning through at such a rate, that's thousands over the year that are going in for a month here, two months there, three months. And that's a lot of children because the vast majority of those women are mothers and primary carers. So this is affecting an enormous amount of children. And we also know that, that it can be the beginning of a very rough experience for children once they get uh, taken out of their parents' care, put into state care. There are lots of problems for children in that system, which is shown by, there have been studies which show it's a, virtually a pipeline from state care into juvenile detention and into the adult prison system. So this is an intergenerational thing. I mean, if the state government pours money into more prison beds, so they're talking about expanding Dame Phyllis Frost from a capacity of 600 to over 700, that's another several thousand women over the course of of years uh, in and out of the prison and all their children. So if they have one, two or three children, that's thousands and thousands of kids that are impacted by heading in this direction of of building prisons. (laughs) Women on the line. Women on the line. (laughs) In entering my guilty plea, I could not say that I was defending myself. That was the advice. I could give mitigating factors, first time offending, you know, my background, but I could not say I was defending myself because that would undermine a guilty plea. I had to be, oh, I am guilty, I'm remorseful. So I was really... I had one really long visit <laughs> with my lawyer and we went round and round in circles about this, about self-defence, what I could say in presenting mitigating factors that she's like, you just can't. You can't say I'm guilty, but. And I had to listen to a victim impact statement from my husband, which made me sick. And and even though the DHS intervention with my family stopped, and I'm very, very grateful for that, I will point out that my my younger son ha- has not returned to my full-time care and the best I could ever hope for is 50-50 going through a family court process. I see him weekends. We really just have to understand how much the power of the state is being brought on these women to plead guilty. You have a choice. You can plead guilty, do an extra 10 days and go back to being with your kids or you can plead self-defence, tell what actually happened, bring evidence in a court, and you might be in for another year and, and not see your kids for another year and have all the problems that with DHS trying to get them to bring into visits. And, yeah, as Amy said, the whole system then orients towards the, uh, the finding that you're guilty after having been coerced into that. It's really quite extraordinary what's happening under these laws. Yeah, it's a lot to think about how the state is really using coercive control in a way to 
try and influence the way in which they trap people. Yeah, in these various yeah, systems. I mean, we think. What I've thought about it a lot. Is it intentional, or is it just that we are a collateral damage to a law and order agenda, which has been proven to win elections, mm. being tough on crime, responding to the Gargasulases and the the other, you know, violent, serious offenders, and then being unconcerned with the fallout for thousands of people. Women on the line. Lastly, maybe Karen and Amy, if you could just share the ways that listeners can support the Homes Not Prisons campaign. Sure. We've got a open letter to the Victorian government calling on them to not expand Dame Phyllis Frost, which of course is first step. We'd like them we'd like to get to the stage of shrinking Dame Phyllis Frost, but we'll start with don't expand it. So they've announced an expansion of 106 beds, which is specifically to deal with the fact that they know that these bail laws are going to result in more and more women going to prison, so they have to build more beds. And actually, that's the case across the system. They're building more beds, especially remand beds, uh, in the women's and the men's prisons. So, yeah, you can go to our open letter. The open letter is calling for them not to expand Dame Phyllis Frost and to change the priority the state's spending. For the cost of 100 cells at Dame Phyllis Frost, the government could build 1,000 public housing units for women and kids. It's just a no-brainer economically. It's a no-brainer in terms of justice. We believe that if the public understood what's happening, they would not support prison expansion and they would support housing expansion. So, yes, you can go to our open letter, sign on. Please send it out to all of your friends. Share it on social media. We also have an activist network that's organising on Discord, which is going to reach out to all different parts of the community. We've got a student group. We've got a housing and homelessness group, family violence group. We've got architects, architecture students who are protesting that they'd rather design home uh, housing than prisons. All different parts of the community can be involved. You can email us to at homesnotprisons at gmail.com. Thanks to Carly Vack for facilitating our conversation with Amy and Karen from the Homes Not Prison campaign. If you are interested, make sure to follow their social media and sign an open letter. You can hear more of that interview where it first aired on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, which you can find on the 3CR website. If the heavy topics in this show has raised anything for you, please reach out to a friend, a service in your state, or a hotline such as 1-800-RESPECT. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send us an email at womenonthelion at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.